John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, well, hello, Todd. Well, how you doing? I'm doing all right. A little tired. Too much traveling. Well, you must have tuckered out Greg because he's not here. Was it uh, too much fun at Oshkosh for you? We, we ran our butts off at Oshkosh. I mean, it was really a busy time. Busier than any other time that I've been there. We had a lot of people to see, a lot of different things to do. So, and great, typically, you know, he does his speeches all over for the FAA and for NAFI, and that's uh, the National Association of Flight Instructors. And so he was busy flapping his jaws, and we had we had a lot of activity. So it was good. And of course, this year it looked like record turnouts of people, uh, and they also unfortunately had a couple of accidents and a few incidents as well so with that number of people that's to be expected i guess and it was hot very very hot so now if i'm uh, understanding correctly there were two events involving three aircraft and there were four fatalities total yes so a couple of helicopters and a, a t6 i think was uh involved with a, a female pilot so it, it was uh, a tough place and, you know, one of the things that came up over and over that's important to some of our, our listeners is the, the number of uh, accidents and incidents involving airplanes with the flight instructor on. Given flight instruction and the student does something he shouldn't have, the flight instructor is a little slow on the uptake. I guess those are my words. We don't know exactly what's going on other than there is an uptick in the numbers. So for all of our students listening, I would advise them to go out and get renter's insurance just to protect themselves and their family from great financial loss because, you know, it may be new pilots don't even realize how expensive it is to fix airplanes. And if you have even a minor accident, we're talking about a lot of money. And, you know, the, the flight school's insurance may or may not cover all that goes on. So you, you just better be safe and just run out and get it. It's not expensive. I know, Todd, you have done it. Oh, yes. So it's not expensive. Right, now, this week's show. Oh, go ahead. Well, before we get into this week's show, I wanted to give you my own flight instructor story. Today, I was supposed to fly with an instructor. 
right before we were supposed to fly, there was a non-fatal accident at the airport we were at, and we had to uh, cancel our appointment. And I had a discussion with the instructors like, you know, this made me think. If we had been flying out there and the airport were closed for a couple hours, we'd have to go to an alternate airport. And we talked about the alternate airports in the area. And we came up with a couple. He came up with a couple of things. It's like, well, you know, our flight school actually has two other locations in the area. If you have to divert, divert to one of those places because we have resources there. You can leave the plane overnight and not get charged. And I thought, you know, I was thinking, let me go to these other airports because they're bigger. But I wasn't thinking as a student, you have to go through with your instructor and go through, hey, what if we have to divert? What are the things I should look out for? Not a, a, a safety of flight thing, but a comfort of flight thing. If I had to divert, I need to be able to get on the ground, get back and take care of things, pick up my dog from big hair, and go about with my day. And if I were worried about that, that would distract from me flying. So if you're a student or if you're an instructor, talk it out with each other. What do you do if things aren't normal? Not normal as an emergency, normal as in we can't land at the airport. So with that, I'd like you to introduce our different topic for today outside of aviation, but with a definite aviation connection. Yes, and that is the submersible that has an accident out at 4,000 feet below the ocean looking on a sightseeing tour to the Titanic. We have a number of our, our listeners who have written in to us concerned about the fuselage on the 787 and other airplanes that are made of composites and comparing it to what goes on in the submarine, uh, which is really totally opposite. But in any event, we're going to get into it and talk about it. And Todd, you've done a lot of work digging up the facts as, as they exist today. There's no accident report yet, right. but uh, you did a... a I just looked at what you sent, and that's uh, there's a lot of material there. So why don't you talk to our audience about what you developed? Certainly. The event we're referring to is the uh, June 18th, 2023 event involving the submersible Titan from the company OceanGate. This got global press attention, but the short story there is they were diving with two crew and three passengers down to the Titanic. At some point, deep in the ocean, although it's not clear how deep, there was a catastrophic um, implosion, that is the pressure on the outside of the sub of the submersible caused a catastrophic failure of the submersible and uh, both wreckage and some human remains were recovered off the ocean floor. Now, at this point, it's very early in the investigation. The American authorities with the Coast Guard, the NTSB leading, are investigating the submersible and the human remains. The Canadian Transportation Safety Board is investigating the support ship that was out there with the submersible. And so far, neither one has an interim report. And there's no indication at this point whether the unique construction of this submersible, which involves use of the use of composites, had any role here. And we're going to flash a picture on the uh, screen for those of you on the video. Uh, this was uh, created by the company OceanGate, based in Everett, Washington, just north of Seattle, and the same city where the 787 and 747 uh, were manufactured and are manufactured. And uh, this was a unique design, as you can see from this graphic. You can see the technician inside of the barrel portion of it where the crew and passengers would sit. And you have what looks like a hinged hemispherical front to it, which is where the porthole is, where the viewing port, rather, is. And it's swinging open like that because in order for the people to go in or outside of the submersible, it has to be bolted onto that composite barrel. 
Now contrast this with a traditional design submersible. We're putting up another graphic here of a submersible called the Alvin. First uh, launched in 1964. It's been totally revamped and re-engineered since then. But the basic design has remained the same. You have a titanium spherical uh, section where the crew and passengers sit, and you have the rest of the submersible around it. It's even designed so that if it became stuck on the bottom, tangled in wreckage, what have you, you can actually separate the forward portion of the Alvin. It would float to the top and it would be rescued. Contrast that with the Titan, which has no hatch other than that bolted uh, forward portion. Um, I'm also going to flash a picture of the um, uh, head of Ocean Gate, who was one of the victims on, on board the submersible, a gentleman named Rush. He is popping out of a porthole of a previous uh, vessel that his company made, which uh, you know had a barrel sort of section as well, and, but it had a porthole, uh, a bubble top on top. So you can actually escape from this without having people from the outside open it up. So bottom line, two big things about this submersible versus the Alvin. One, you had to unbolt a piece of it to get people in and out. Two, there was no independent way for people to um, either separate a portion of the, of, the, of the vessel or to open up and get out of it if they were bobbing on the surface. Another thing to realize, this is perhaps the biggest thing, and I'm sure the authorities in the U.S. are going to be looking at this very, very closely. The submersible Titan was not built to any internationally recognized standards. Now, the Titanic is in international waters, and part of that means that um, the Coast Guard, any national authority, doesn't have sway over certifying whether a vessel can operate in international waters. And although there are voluntary um, guidelines and voluntary uh, standards that submersible builders around the world follow, this company decided not to. One of the unique things, perhaps the most recognizably unique thing about this design is the fact that the barrel was not only not spherical like the Alvin, the pressure vessel rather, was not spherical, but it was made out of carbon fiber. Similar to, although not exactly like, the design of the fuselage of the 787, where you have instead of aluminum or some other metal, you have carbon fiber wound several layers, etc., that is protecting the passengers inside. Now, a very, very quick lesson, and this is going to be a very quick lesson on submersibles because I'm not a submariner, but when it comes to aircraft, submersibles rather, they measure the pressure on that submersible in something called atmospheres. They're walking around the surface of the earth at sea level. That's one atmosphere. If you go 33 feet underwater, that's two atmospheres. If you go down to the level of the Titanic, it's about 375 atmospheres. Now, compare that with a 787 flying at 30,000 feet. That's about half an atmosphere. So if you imagine there is a failure of a, of a window, window pops out, depressurizes the cabin of a 787. It's going to be very dramatic. It's going to be fairly violent. But after a few seconds, the pressure is equalized, the oxygen mass drop, and you have to put that on because with that level of oxygen, you might have 30 seconds or less of useful consciousness. And then the crew dives to a lower atmosphere lower altitude, rather. If you are at the level of Titanic, you have 375 atmospheres outside of you, you have a tiny little pinprick of a hole. It's not going to be several seconds of air rushing out. It'll be way less than a second of water, debris, and everything else 
flooding the inside of that compartment, probably leading to death so quickly that the nerve impulses might not reach the brain before death occurs. Now, we don't know. The Coast Guard has not stated, that the, the Canadians have not stated whether or not the carbon fiber failed or it had anything to do with the implosion. But they are fairly certain there was an implosion. It was very, very violent. It probably took well less than a second before everyone perished. And it might be months before we find out the details of what happened. Yeah, it totally is. Uh, it's unfortunate. But, you know, how can you... I mean, what was the guy that owned this company thinking about with with uh, using a system, a system being the vehicle, with no standards, built to no standards except his own? Was he an um, engineer? Did he have engineering talent? I um, mean, there's a lot of questions that need to be asked. I answer. can't answer the second question, but I can't answer the first one. He was an engineer. In fact, he went to the same undergraduate engineering school I was in. I graduated in the class of 1981 at uh, Princeton. He was in the class of 84. Uh, he was a freshman and I was a senior. I literally never recalled meeting him. So we might have walked the same halls at some point, but he did have a, a, a solid engineering education. And he has been working at this for a long time. He started the Ocean Gate Company in 2009, starting to design this. And he had uh, radical but very clear ideas of doing designs in a way not like traditional designs, doing it in such a way so that trips to uh, the lower parts of the ocean could be done frequently and rather, rather cheaply compared to what had been done before. And one of the things that came up in some of the news reports post-accident was the fact that they were using a variation of a Logitech game controller to control the submarine as opposed to traditional uh, valves and switches and such. And uh, much was made of that. And again, I don't know if that had anything to do with any of the failures that happened on that, but this is an example of the kind of thinking that he had, very much out of the box. In fact, doing a research for this, I came across a newspaper article from a co-founder of the company. The company was founded in 2009. This particular co-founder left in 2013. But recently, he's been touting an idea, this vision of creating vehicles to float in the atmosphere of Venus, where people, up to 500 of them, could be living by a few decades in the future. Now, is this an outrageous set of uh, ideas? Absolutely. Is it visionary? Absolutely. Is it practical? I don't know. Would anyone with any common sense volunteer to do so? I'm sure you could find volunteers somewhere on Earth. But this gives you an idea of where these uh, creators had come from. They were willing to use engineering and technology to create, uh, on the one hand, very risky, untested, uncertified, totally out-of-the-box designs. If they worked, it would be a remarkable achievement. If they didn't work, it could set that technology back decades. Now, I don't know what else had been done prior to the Titan, but I'm unaware of any submersibles, either remote or with people on it, that had been designed, built, and tested using composites as a way to build a pressure vessel. Now, Personally, if I had heard about this years ago and said, hey, Todd, we'll give you a free ride on this if you'd like. I said, tell you what, do a few hundred dives and uh, I'll, I'll talk to you about it later. I would not personally go on something that technologically risky on a first time basis, unless it was heavily engineered with humongous amounts of effort. For example, the space shuttle. 
Some of our audience may not have been born, but the first space shuttle flight in 1981, that was the first time that NASA had launched a human-rated vehicle, where the very first launch of the vehicle had humans on board. Everything else, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, they tested them without people on board before they put people on board. The space shuttle, they rolled the dice and they went all in. And yes, there were two catastrophic losses during life of the program, but uh, it did work the first time and they came back without a scratch. If you have that level of, of technology, that level of engineering, I consider going on as one of the early adopters, not something like this. Well, I hope we put our, our uh, listeners at ease that comparing that submarine to airplanes is really apples and oranges. And getting the back to the heavily uh, uh, certified part of it, like I said, the 787 had to be certified by the FAA. And the FAA had over their shoulders the European authorities, the Japanese authorities, the rest of the world authorities, the potential customers for the 787. They, too, would not just take the FAA's word for it. They had to take the FAA's word, do their own testing, and say, okay, it's all right. You can go ahead with it. Thousands of aircraft, millions of flights, many uh, data points, many thousands of people working on this, and changes happening on a near-constant basis. There's always... Um, service bulletins coming out, some of them voluntary, many of them mandatory, where even the littlest problem is found out. It's like, hey, you got to change things. About 10 years ago, 787s had battery fire problems. Uh, they were even grounded for a while. Uh, engineers went to work on it. Mechanics went to work on it. The problem was fixed. They were put back in service. Problem hasn't reoccurred. Not a single person's been killed in a 787. It's proven to be a very reliable uh, platform. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a fun new podcast called So There I Was. If you're a fan of aviation or simply enjoy hearing captivating stories, then this is the podcast for you. Hosted by former Marine pilots Fig and Repeat, this podcast shares first-hand accounts of flying experiences that will have you on the edge of your seat. Whether you're in the mood for something funny, scary, poignant, or tragic, this podcast has it all. With a relaxed and conversational tone, the pilots share their stories like you're sitting right there with them at the bar after a flight. Hear from fighter pilots, astronauts, Blue Angels, aircraft carrier captains, Navy and Coast Guard rescue pilots, and many more. Most have survived near-death experiences. Others have overcome incredible disabilities to continue to fly airplanes. You'll hear about heart-pumping moments in the cockpit, hilarious screw-ups during flights, insane hijinks off-duty, and the challenges pilots routinely face. Hear what it feels like to be shot off the bow of a carrier or into space. Experience the terror of landing on a pitching deck on a night so black that the pilot can barely taxi afterwards because his legs are shaking so badly. Hear firsthand how lonely it is to be in the middle of the ocean in a life raft on a dark night in eight-foot seas. Each story is unique and told with a level of detail that will make you feel like you were there. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll laugh until you cry. But one thing is certain. You won't be bored. So there I was. It's how all great aviation tales begin. Well, Todd, you get the, the second last word. Well, uh, second to the last word is all of you folks out there who've spent part or even all of your careers in aviation and aerospace, some of that attitude is applicable to other places. You say, who are we to talk about this submersible? We're not submariners. We're not naval engineers. No, but we are people who understand technology, and there are certain things that are common in complex technologies, one of them being 
is this being done in a way that is consistent with basic practices and when necessary, consistent with certifying authorities? If it is, you have less risk. If it isn't, there's greater risk. Whether the risk is acceptable or not is up to you. Go in there with open eyes and make your decision. Okay, and for the last word, I'll do what I always have done. If you're going to go flying, do an excellent job of pre-planning. Do it at home before you leave or the hotel, and then do it again at the airport. Make sure you take a good look at the weather, here, there, and everywhere in between. When you, when you get out to your airplane, do a good pre-flight. We had a lot of discussions, Greg and I, with manufacturers and pilots about pre-flights, how to do them, how they do them, uh, where do they get their information from, what do they look for, and we're going to be talking about that on future shows. And then after you get in the air, put your head on the swivel, uh, at least from the initial reports of the helicopters, the two helicopters that collided, clearly one of them wasn't looking, and maybe both of them weren't looking, but clearly it, looked, it does look like one of them wasn't uh, didn't have their head on the swivel. So please, please pay attention to all those little details and fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.